0: Hello, friends. It's alpha Bunga Bunga. The date is Wednesday, the 19th of August. It's all three of us. Uh, that means George is back uh, for for George fans. You'll be happy to hear. Uh, if you happen to be uh, not specifically not a George fan, you can hear the two episodes we recorded uh, while he was away, you know, on Lebanon and then one on Iran, which is coming up uh, in a month or two's time. Um, so something for everyone, George fans and,
1: and non-George fans. Welcome Could back, George. Lead. Thanks. Thanks. And hello to all my, my fans, it seems. so. Yeah, Yeah, very good. Uh, Right, so this is another
0: alpha bonus, bonus, um, where we respond to your questions, criticisms, points, uh, suggestions, indeed. Um, And that's what we'll be dealing with here uh, in its entirety, Uh, no extra bonus content uh, this month. Um, But there's quite a lot to get get our teeth into, so that's what we're going to be doing. Um, In the uh, next bit, we're not going to read your name out if you sent us a message uh, privately. Um, but if you do wish uh, us to name names in the future, then please uh, indicate so in anything that you send us. Otherwise, if there are tweets, Facebook comments, or posts on uh, Patreon, then we'll obviously mention you by name um, because everyone knows who you are already. Um, Right, so uh, let's get started. Um, We received plenty of suggestions for for episode topics. I mean, just pulling out two that we received. Uh, One year, Milkweed on Twitter suggested doing something on uh, Azerbaijan or Armenia, uh, the conflict in the Caucasus. Uh, Marcelo Rodriguez on Twitter suggested, why don't you do an episode on Brazil's madness? Um, I think it might be a good opportunity now to discuss uh, maybe how we select episodes or why we select certain things.
2: Um, yeah, we've done, and also, I mean, we've done uh, episodes on Brazil, um, not to mention um, uh, one you know that was uh, immediately after Bolsonaro's election, and we've dipped in and ad consistently since, not least because um you're based in Sao Paulo, Alex.
1: Yeah, I think he I, mean, you know, I think he probably knows that, Phil. Um...
2: <laughs> you never I mean, know.
0: It's quarantine. This I have right no idea where point I am. I live points. I live exactly. in my I live in my flat. I don't live in a city. Um no, I so, mean I think the Brazil question I think is is right. I, you know, from my perspective, I could do an episode on Brazil every week, there's enough things going on. But on the other hand, um, there's nothing major, nothing major has shifted um, in Brazil, you know, specifically. In fact, there's a bit of a deadlock, you know, Bolsonaro is maybe unpopular, but no one's going to dislodge him either. Uh, The democracy is very precarious at the moment, but also there's no real force pushing it one way or the other. So um, until further notice, uh, that's how things (laughs) remain. Um, but I think in general, you know we just did one on Lebanon. Obviously that was one where we had been planning on doing one for a little while and then obviously something major happened. so it's a good opportunity to do a sort of emergency episode on something. Um, but in general, we're always keen on doing uh, covering new places. plenty of the world we haven't visited yet so. Uh, right. So uh, moving on, another general comment. Uh, someone says, can someone tell Phil to lighten up? George is allowed to make a joke once in a while. He can even barely get it out before Phil is grumbling or cutting him off.
2: No, uh, no.
0: <laughs> that is Wes Gr- <laughs> Grosling, Wes Grosslein on Patreon, which I think must no. be, uh, is that an anagram of George Whore? Maybe. Uh, <laughs> just one of the well, just
1: one of the fans, mate. I mean, what can I <laughs> oh, what can on. I say? No, um, one
2: is, no one is a fan of your jokes, and I don't think George should be allowed to comment on this comment because it's clearly you know clearly one of his uh, diehard partisans and supporters.
1: No, it's um, a conflict it, conflict of interest, so I, I I won't comment on this other than to say <laughs> that
2: more, more, more
1: comments like this, you know, <laughs> couldn't possibly go amiss. Um, right. So uh,
0: two more uh, serious general comments, uh, which we might spend a little bit more time on because they are, I guess, more theoretical um, in terms and, and, and touch on what our general perspective is. Uh, so one was a private message sent through Patreon. So I won't name uh, who that's from. Again, if in future you wish to be named, please do indicate uh right so the the point is the following most challenges to neoliberalism have been aesthetic merely aesthetic ones the perceived challengers are to their core conservative and um, both on political and cultural grounds and um, at the ground level i do think many people want to genuinely challenge the status quo and um, with this in mind do you think you guys were wrong to claim that we are at the end of the end of history also should your book be renamed it's a biggie
1: yeah it's a good point but i think it's I think it it actually agrees with what we're saying the whole point about the end of the end of history is it's a negative construction so it is it is consistent with saying that the challenges or the supposed or apparent challenges to neoliberalism are conservative are flimsy are don't represent a force which is really going to to reform society so I think it I think it makes I think it makes sense and that's something that 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 phrase tries to capture is that feeling that there is there's challenge, but the challenge is not there's no alternative really.
2: I think yeah. it's. Um, I mean, the our point about the end of the end of history is the disintegration of the status quo ante. It's not about the emergence of something new and substantial to substitute for that previous regime. Um, So to that end, I don't think we've mischaracterized, we've acknowledged the limits of all the challenges to the status quo without implying that there's some new paradigm that could replace um, post-Cold War liberal capitalism. All we have really is disintegration. So I don't think it's inconsistent with what what this comment says
1: yeah and it's also you know probably worth saying that now the book's finished we're not changing it so even if it was a valid criticism we would come up with some reason to say that it 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 wasn't it's just just too late um but the book is absolutely
0: correct i think it's important to emphasize uh, there are no lies mistruths misrepresentations in it whatsoever so um, no
1: but i mean there's I a, there's a good uh, point here that people you know, there is a genuine desire to challenge the status quo because there is a, a widespread perception that it's not feasible. It's, it doesn't command neoliberalism doesn't command widespread support. You know, you can't find so many neoliberals um or self-described as such. So there is a, there is a sense that there's there is a potential for for a new a new force, a new alternative, but we're in that I'm, I'm trying not to say a specific word, which means a period between two periods, but we're in an intermission, an intermezzo, um <laughs> if you will. Um yeah, but, but where basically we we haven't had the a new period, we've just had the the breaking down of the side of the road yeah. um and the unfixability of an old one.
0: I think the breakdown right now seems even more glaring because I think, you know, when we were when we first started talking about the end of the end of history, which would have been, you know, about three years ago, uh it was you know, the, because of left populism specifically, it seemed that there was a sort of new challenge that there was populisms of the left and the right, um, that there was more kind of ideological diversity and that there were, uh, you know, that there were the germs at least there of, of genuine challenges to neoliberalism. Um, with the end of and the failure of left populism, all we're left now with and, and facing is, is breakdown, right, and, and more and more culture war. Point that we've made before, you know, the, the so-called return of politics mainly ma- manifests itself as hot culture war. And that's, uh, and, you know, and that's still something we're dealing with, but I totally agree with what Phil and Georgia just said. Uh, it's a negative construction. It's the end of the end of history. It's the end of neoliberal hegemony with nothing rising to challenge it. So, I, I mean, I don't think that uh, the, the point made to us really um, would suggest that we should change our conception or that where we were wrong to suggest it was the end of the end of history. Um, but, you know, come back to us in five years. <laughs> All right. So moving on to the next one, another one by uh, Twitter DM. Uh, so this remains unnamed. Um, this was specifically in response, actually, to the episode with Anna Kachin on conservative critics of capitalism, but it has wider applications. So that's why we're discussing it here uh, at the top of this show. Right. So uh, it's as follows. You say that if some of the social conservatives uh, were more studied on the economics of capitalism, you're not sure they would be so conservative. I think that is accurate. Yet your own analysis falls similarly short when you all agree that God is dead. I contend that if the secular left were more studied in the religio-cultural values of capitalism, they would not be so secular. Um, the I think the thrust of, of this point is the following, that capitalism has not disenchanted the world, but has misenchanted it. That is that people's religious aspirations and hopes for humanity have been subsumed into and replaced by capitalism, i.e. the religion of modernity. Um, by, uh, by assuming a materialist metaphysics, which I think they're accusing us of, uh, you rob yourself of answers. Um, this person signs off uh, in Christ, um, and has a Vatican flag emoji in the handle, so yeah, I can grasp where uh, their the ideological perspective. You
2: shouldn't assume uh, anything about from. emojis. You shouldn't assume anything <laughs> about emojis, Alex. I don't know why you're rushing to pass judgment on no, our listeners. you're, you're like absolutely this. right.
0: Though in Christ, I think um, does suggest <laughs> a certain uh, Catholic point of view. Let's put it that way. Um, thoughts?
2: It's an interesting. I mean, you know, I mean, obviously, it's wrong. I suppose I would say. Um, <laughs> I would, I would throw it the other way around, I guess. And say it's that, I mean, it's a common idea, right? That kind of much of modern life is simply kind of has religious, uh, religious elements which have been drained of their substance with the implication being that there is nothing, which is, um, there is nothing about the modern world that is genuinely secular. It's just purged of its religious elements. And, um, the aim is always in some way or other, obviously, as this person is very aware of is always to um, undermine the validity of the modern world and its claims to be independent of, um, of previous history and to be secular and self-sufficient and independent of um, the divine and, you know, uh, religion. With the implication being, I guess, that you could simply kind of pour back a religious content into these empty vessels and that would resolve problems of alienation, you know fragmentation and isolation and all the kind of ills that we were talking about with um with anna on that specific episode and i think it's um i mean if you know if capitalism is um does have religious components or indeed if um if uh if um socialism has religious components if the left has kind of religious aspects to it then that suggests to me that it's religion in fact that is um that has those elements built into it. I mean, after all, religion itself is, uh, embodies human feeling and human aspiration, and it has for most of human history. It's a human product. So the idea that, um, that secular modern ideals would also bear the imprint of these aspirations that are ultimately human um, should come as no surprise, and, they shouldn't be, um, and it should come as no surprise, and it doesn't devalue them. I think, you know, G. Jack's line on communism is a good one, where he says communism is like religion in answer to all the liberal kind of critics that it's a fanatical kind of theological ideology that brooks no dissent. Um, He says communism is a religion with all the crap superstitious bits taken out. Um, And I think, you know, that's essentially right. So, I mean, you know, I wouldn't, I suppose I wouldn't, I wouldn't, I wouldn't, disagree well, i said i did disagree with it earlier but i mean i suppose the point is i it's, it's,
1: it's dialectics you're you're you like she now it's obviously yeah. wrong but i don't disagree
2: exactly so. yeah so i mean i t- you know i'm not i don't i don't deny the force of, of the point but um i just don't think that it uh hits the target that the that it, they think it does
1: yeah i mean a, a couple of points on this i think it's it seems to me often that the um people who are who are religious or religiously minded and conservative in that sense are often more interesting interlocutors than neoliberals there is something that they grasp um
2: what do you mean by neoliberals do you mean actual neoliberals well, or do you just mean yeah the lame I guess, kind of lame um pmc technocrats
1: yeah the the i i should be more careful with my terms the lame pmc technocrats okay. um but yeah, I think the there's also something about contemporary secularism, which is it's moved on a little bit from the kind of Richard Dawkins' days of basically, oh, you you believe in God, you're an idiot. That God is just because people are idiots and they're so and they're too dumb. And it's like, okay, have 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 we not read kind of the the Marxist critique of of religion, you know, heart no. of a heartless world? It it was corresponds. read it? Was read it. it so hopefully some of us on this podcast it co- i mean religion corresponds to a to a an uh it's a cyber press, of an oppressed creature there is a real need um for meaning for for you know for for narrative for community which which obviously um some of the more kind of red red tory kind of people in the british context have have found and, and made hay with i think the The idea that a materialist metaphysics robs us of answers is is not something that i would agree with because obviously that's the you know that's the starting point of 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 marxism and that's pretty much (laughs) the the reason why it gives so many answers so i I wouldn't agree with that point
0: yeah i mean I, i think my only comment on this is maybe an observation about certain trends on on the left over the past you know 20 years or something i think you know the left used to be Vehemently, not only secularist but um, but also atheist, um, and I think you know. And I'm I'm really talking about the past twenty years, not any over longer scale than that. And over the past couple of years, five, ten years, maybe because of the weight of uh, new atheists types, you know, kind of centrist, hard anti-religious types um, who often try to smuggle in uh, you know prejudice against Muslims into their you know view of of atheism uh, specifically.
2: Yeah, or Americans, led, has, redneck Americans, or redneck
0: Americans, for that matter. Um, if you're talking about, you know, anyway. So, th- and that there's been a bit sort of departure from that, and the left has kind of become maybe too soft on it. You know, has a certain Islamophilia, even in certain cases. Um, but I think again, it's it's very context dependent, and I think the it, it, the, the the left's positioning with regard to religion, I think, is very or is and should be dependent on an evaluation of its of religion, social force in any. Uh, given period and place, so I mean, you know, in, in Brazil, where there's a strong evangelical movement, uh, which is the base of hard right conservatism, I think there's a much more greater importance to challenge that for a defense of the secular state. Um, you know, in, in in pretty godless Britain and a lot of Northern Europe, uh, the case is different, and going after religion would seem to be a sort of quixotic c- pursuit, or that there'd be something else behind it, in as in the uh, the sort of new atheist guys, which tries to um, I guess, rob, uh, rob society of any sense of belief um, and faith in any sort of ideals. I mean, you know, I think that's what's yeah. at root of, uh, of a lot of the new atheists, like in the guise of disenchanting the world, uh, removes any sense of, um, yeah, of enchantment of belief. Um, so anyway, just a comment that I think it's very context dependent, how you uh, evaluate the, the force of religion and your position with regard, with regard to it. Okay, let's move on. Uh, now we're dealing with uh, episode by episode, and we're going to do this back to front, um, which is the way we like to do things. <laughs> we're going to start with the, old, the, the oldest one first, uh, which was number 129, The right is Week, which is actually from all the way back at the end of June. Um, but because we got a comment which is worth discussing, uh, we're going to discuss it. So it is as follows. It's from Beardzo Tarp uh, on Patreon. The more and more I think about the episode, I grow more and more scared of any possible leftist movement growing out of the West. I've heard those on the left and right talk about how the left has won the culture wars and are essentially looking for a master to rebel against. And in many aspects, I agree with that thought. So if we won culturally and the right is at its weakest, why does being a leftist feel hopeless outside of abolishing the police and electoral politics? all that's left is identity politics and a push for meritocracy uh, through the guise of identity politics and, um, quote-unquote, this idea that we can all be Beyonce if we weren't being discriminated discriminated against. Um, so there's a lot there to, to deal with. And I think, um, yeah, if the, if the left won the culture Yeah, we've won
2: culturally, but not politically. I mean, that's the answer to why it's hopeless to be a leftist. But the, right, but I the think point being... is that the right doesn't
0: have hegemony either. I think that's, you know... So I think that's, <clears> that's <throat> No, a, that's
2: a well... Puzzle. Yeah, but I mean, yeah, it's uh, it's counterintuitive, I suppose, but is you know, I mean, on kind of on deeper reflection, it makes sense. The right, and this is the point which Corey Robin has made, is the right is defined by its being a response to the left, and it has nothing against which to define itself, and hasn't had for some time in the aftermath of the Cold War. The disintegration of a meaningful kind of left challenge to um, to um, the status quo means that the right simply has nothing against which it can define itself against which it can prop itself up against which it can um kind of rouse itself to some kind of historic response and rejoinder and so unsurprisingly you know this is the this is this is where we are at and i mean i agree that being scared of the leftist movement growing out of the west i mean i think there's good grounds for that because speaking in the british context at least um you know the left has been tremendously ugly uh, going back to its attempt to cancel the Brexit referendum, and those listeners will know, you know, I think a lot of the in the British context, at least, a lot of the BLM um, move or a lot of the the effervescence and energy of B, the BLM movement in Britain, a lot of that is driven by an attempt by of um, left wing elites in the civil service and in various kind of elite institutions to try and climb back out from underneath the democratic boulder of Brexit. So, I think there are good reasons to be scared of um, possible leftist movements growing out of the West. If we understand the leftist movement in, as they're currently constituted, as essentially liberal, you know, radicalized liberal PMCA, as we've talked about previously. Um, and I think those people are genuinely scary. So, it's um, legitimate to be scared of them. I think, and,
1: yeah, I think we can even right, go further. Yeah, go on. Right. And I think we can say that what seems like the most likely situation and alex I'm, I, I don't think you fully agree with me on this but but i'll go for it anyway is that in the next five ten years you will see the increased dominance of the left whatever exactly that means by its liberal wing by its by radical liberals with a very heavy cultural focus and you could just see a, a pretty um plausible sort of narrative or trajectory where there's a there's a movement against any political forms of control um, either at the nation that either at the national level or in it through any other kind of um, mechanisms and a focus on cultural and more identity concerns and that is not a um, emancipatory project that is uh, in fact quite a reactionary one because the reason maybe why it's so Hopeless in some sometimes to be a a leftist is because the thing that really (laughs) makes Has always been at the center of I guess a socialist argument is we can collectively control society We can make decisions collectively. That is the way that we that is the way that we achieve control and and freedom and If you don't have those terms and that that basis and you're just basically winning cultural struggles then it's going to feel quite disempowering because that's not the power power doesn't um adhere in culture it's a political it's a political force and and that's i think one thing the left has has lost sight of in general yeah i mean actually don't disagree with that and i mean
0: first of all not on culture i think it's interesting how things which were meant to be a corrective um have turned into fully fledged self-standing ideologies Right, and so you can see this in many ways. I'm I'm referring here specifically to um, a certain Gramscian, I guess, approach uh, to to culture, um, which was maybe an important corrective to. Uh, and I mean, George, correct me if I'm if I'm talking nonsense. In my interpretation of, of Gramsci. You're talking here, nonsense. But, no, I, I don't know what you're going to say, but well, yeah. I mean, just that it, it was meant as a corrective to, to emphasize the role of uh, of culture in in and hegemony. Um, Whereas today that's taken as the the kind of the sum total of what left politics should be effectively forgetting about power and thinking about, you know, marching through the institutions and having, say, you know, the BBC increasingly representing the views of radical leftists or things like that. Right. Um, so, you know, and I think we can see this more broadly, and this relates to the point about the left winning the culture war is that things like, um the point about the personalist political, the kind of famous feminist slogan that was often, that was meant as a corrective to a lot of, uh, um, you know, machismo within the left, which I think was right. That feminists were, um, you know, would would argue against that um, and argue for their own place within the left and so on, and not to be marginalized within the left's own organizations that then became exploded onto society as a whole, um, you know, with its kind of denouement and the kind of me too movement. So, it's, I find it very interesting how, th- how things, which are meant as a sort of intra-left critique or a, as a certain corrective to certain tendencies, um, end up um, being reinterpreted as meant to be a kind of you know I- fully fledged ideology on their
1: own. Mm, I mean, we could talk about this all all evening. I mean, I think it's it's also the case in with regard to feminism that there's been a an, an increased focus on cultural questions at the at the expense of political ones, questions of Questions of control which are that which are at the core of any emancipatory project. I mean we could we could Yeah, we should do something on Gramsci at some point because mm. I have all of my pet my pet theories um, and I think there is something important and it's maybe particularly in the anglophone on the anglophone left about and a particular interpretation of Gramsci And an idea of cultural hegemony, which is like, okay If we can just publish more and better articles and get some some positions in in various media Outlets then we're fine. It's just a hop skip and a jump to To revolution which obviously is not what Gramsci thought but there's, you know, there's maybe something to discuss there in in the future
0: Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, Maybe we should move on. Um, I mean, I just did at one point, because as you said, George, that I might disagree with it. No, I think that the left is going to be continually more dominated by its liberal wing. And it's interesting because, I mean, something that we've discussed in, in the writing of the book, as well as I think on previous episodes, you know, it's a question of whether Uh, if you think about American politics, for instance, whether the Democratic Party is moving leftwards, whether it's just um, its kind of base which has moved leftwards, or if it's the the new activists, which are more to the left, whereas the general population isn't. Anyway, so there's a lot of debate about where exactly these things lie and where the direction of travel is, both of uh, the Democratic Party establishment, it's its, uh, the activists and its kind of electoral base and and its wider electorate. Um, I think what seems to be happening is that You know, you have this new cohort, this new generation, which is more, um, let's say, quote unquote, left wing, more liberal on on cultural grounds, you know, culturally liberal. Um, And you can see that as, you know, in media institutions, for example, where new cohorts are replacing older editors and whatever, where you saw recently um, off the back of the BLN movement, lots of editors being sacked um, and probably new younger ones appointed who have different views, uh, more radically liberal views, I suppose, as opposed to more, as opposed to classically liberal. Um, and this, I think, is probably what's hap- what, what happens with a lot of central left parties, probably happens with Labour, uh, might even happen with the French Socialist Party and so on, where they move leftwards, they will continue to move leftwards on, on cultural grounds, but I don't think that signifies any um, genuine political, um, political change. But, you know, we would probably argue that that will not be electorally successful, which I think is right. But on the other Mm -hmm. hand, I think you do have to countenance the fact that there is a generational change, so it does respond to a genuine social change. It's not just a purely um, institutional political phenomenon,
1: right? Yeah. I mean, just just to refer really quickly back to to a a previous question, you know, that's the end of the end of history, negatively defined. The, The right is weak, but the left is is weak as well. There's, there's, you know, and that that negative construction creates a void that a lot of other things can can sort of spill into. Absolutely. Um,
0: Because we just mentioned BLM, we'll move on to the next one, number 130, uh, which is the three articles we did. Uh, Just one point came from uh, Gabriel Goffman on Patreon. Um, He said that in the US, I think statue I think of statue destruction not as historical ignorance, but as widespread alienation, questioning the legitimacy of government as a whole. I'm not sure why Washington, George Washington's statue is valued. Uh, he defended slavery, and very likely uh, the U.S. Revol- the, the American Revolution, favored the property class at the expense of the working class. Um, so we should w- knock down George Washington's statue. Well, I mean that's my that's my reading of his uh, of the thrust of his point. Uh, Phil, I you think want to I mean
2: the. Well, I mean you know I don't think that historical ignorance and widespread alienation are mutually exclusive, and um, <laughs> you the, can be ignorant I mean, if- and
0: alienated.
2: Well, quite so, but and also maybe alienation explains ignorance as well, so I mean, I think you know the um the the deep kind of frustration that and political alienation, even nihilism I think that's expressive in attacking um or defacing symbols of um symbols of the American revolution of american independence so, i mean I think that's entirely consistent with that kind of movement, and um why wouldn't George Washington's statue be valued? Um you know, irrespective of whether um he was a slave owner um but also the founding father of the nation and so i mean you know we can i think our views are well enough known that we don't think that the you know as uh, on this podcast at least that we don't think that the um the fact that um there were slave owners in amongst the founding fathers of the u s condemns um condemns the u s um, as a political project or as a historic nation, um, nor indeed the fact that the US Revolution favoured a property-owning, one property class, um, uh, given the fact that it established in itself as an independent revolutionary state in the Atlantic. Um, and I think more to the point um, that the erasure of the, you know, to pull down statues of slave-owning founding fathers, I think, is to suggest that because their presence and the fact that we, you know, that we know that there were slave owners, I think that effectively tasks us with redeeming still um, the forgotten, um, the what is still to be left to be achieved under the terms of the American revolution. Um, whereas pulling down those statues and erasing that history um, as part of this project of moral renewal associated with um, the, 60, the New York Times 1619 project or um the be you know kind of uh the liberal kind of uh, thrust of blm more broadly is to suggest that um that there is nothing to be redeemed in the american revolution indeed the revolution effectively it erases the very kind of memory of revolution and what revolution is capable of and what revolution means and that seems to me to be effect you know i mean essentially counter-revolutionary essentially if, it, if you have to Read it in those terms it seems to me essentially counter-revolutionary. I think, it's erasing the memory of revolution mm, itself.
1: I think that's a little Overblown. I mean at points when you were saying that I thought, you know, you, you almost had me there, but I think the It's important to, to, to remember these, you know statues. It's a symbolic Act to pull them down. It's a symbolic, you know defending a symbol if you're if you're defending the statue. It's it's not I think now that we have a bit more distance from from that you know from the height of statue pulling down time i think it it just doesn't f- feel to me to be a central political question i mean obviously it's important to defend revolution and to defend what can be achieved and is still yet to be achieved in america you know we're still coming to look for america but the 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 argument about statues is not the terrain i don't think on which to on which to make those arguments
2: well it's not the terrain i would choose but i wasn't the one pulling down statues i mean if they're pulling down statues of grant uh, defacing statues of lincoln um pulling down statues of jefferson and washington um you know then that's where the debate is so or was at least and so and then it tasks us i think with making the case for why what those statues represent as a historical legacy and memory and like I say, I mean it seems to me to um, to destroy those statues is to is effectively to erase the possibility of historical change. So it suggests whereas you know if we have those statues as um, reminders of the limits of um, the American Revolution and what the kind of what is still left over for the American Revolution to still achieve and what still needs to be achieved, then that those statues are a reminder of that whereas if they've gone and disappeared, and now we feel that we've improved morally as a society because we've removed or attacked those statues. That seems to me deeply, you know, kind of historical amnesia and in fact that's, a much greater endorsement of the status quo. Um, a terrifyingly yeah. naive endorsement of the status quo in fact.
1: But that's the point to attack. The point to attack is whether this changes anything. Yeah, we haven't morally improved anything um, by tearing down statues. We haven't changed anything. I mean, maybe we don't disagree quite so much but I think that's seems to me like that's the point to put the emphasis on that like you haven't you haven't changed society by taking a symbol of an old society and and pulling it down there's nothing
2: no, I mean there's I, no there's
1: I, no real achievement in that it's
2: worse but it's
0: worse I, than I agree. That. no I mean, no I, I, I let me just come in because I, I mean I don't think that pulling down the statue I don't want to get, even get into the discussion about statues because how do you evaluate a statue on its own right? I mean, it's, it becomes an aesthetic question. The, the um, argument
1: about statues is very fixed, very kind of immovable, like a, <laughs> okay. like a statue. Um, yeah. but, I, but I think... The, I I think don't the, tell I think me... Wait,
2: wait, wait. Don't tell me... Don't tell me, Mr. Whoever-was-complaining-West-gross-line-patreon, don't tell me that that joke shouldn't have been cut off. That joke should have been cut <laughs> off because it was a terrible fucking joke.
0: Right um yeah I, I it was uh probably could have been torn down yeah uh i think the point about whether pulling down statues represents a defense of the status quo a sort of anti-radicalism i'm not sure i buy that but what i do think and i think your reference to the 69 project um and what we were discussing with with anton actually last night phil um is that um that the, the basically try the the pulling down of the statues and saying that basically 1776, the American Revolution was, um, you know, uh, effectively conservative, um, looking from today's perspective, reactionary. uh, And therefore, we have to go back to 1619 as a key date, because it was uh, the real um, kind of birthplace of the US was the original sin of slavery. And basically, I think that is an attempt to recapture certain radicalism, right, of saying, here we can complete the American project. What is missing for the completion of the American project? It's for the incorporation and in fran- full enfranchisement of um, the excluded section of American society, i.e. Black America. Um, and so if we can heal that wound, then the American project will be complete, we'll have closure. So the, the, there is a certain radicalism in there. But of course, it's in the service of uh, effectively neoliberal meritocracy, That if that if black people had, were able to compete on the market on the same grounds without discrimination as white people, then there truly we would have the America that we dreamt of. <laughs> um and I think that's what's I think that's what's at stake there. Um in the rejection of seventeen seventy six and the, the and looking towards sixteen nineteen as as a as the real starting point. Oh,
2: no, I disagree. I think that's um I just think it's it's uh, it's the worst kind of counter-revolutionary vandalism, pulling down statues of Grant and pulling down statues of Lincoln and Jefferson Wouldn't pull down a Lincoln
0: statue, but anyway.
2: Ah, uh, well, then the 1619ers would, right? Because of the things that Lincoln said about black people um, and the kind of uh, deals and promises and kind of claims that he made in the process of constructing his electoral coalition in terms of placating the various factions. I mean, all you need to do is to read the speech that Frederick Douglass made in front of the statue of Lincoln, um, the Emancipation Statue of Lincoln in Washington, D.C., which was made from the dedications and financial contributions of former slaves to see how um, a proper kind of revolutionary assessment of the I, contribution I, I and I totally also agree, what I do- that statue represents. That not, is a I'm good speech.
0: It's a great speech. It's a great speech. But I'm not, dis- I'm not disputing that. At all, right? And I don't um, think
2: there is any worthwhile radicalism or any kind of a way to redeem. It's worthwhile
0: credit. It's not the redeem, sixteen I, not,
2: nineteen project. There no, is there is, there is no way. No, is. I
0: I totally agree. But what I'm just proposing that my analysis is more correct than yours is on on the question, which is. And which I'm is, saying
2: it's not. This is what we're disagreeing about. It's not correct.
0: You're saying you're saying there's no. I'm what I'm saying is that there's a certain attempt to find a radicalism in the completion of the American project. Not through no, the reference, not, not through reference of the American Revolution, but through but there's still an implicit um, sort of American dream in that because, because of its go. neoliberal, because of its defense of neoliberal Very, meritocracy.
2: No, there is nowhere to there is nowhere to go with redeeming anything about America unless you begin from the American Revolution. Yeah, society, I agree, all, I agree, but the, I'm saying this is how
0: they see themselves. I, but what, I'm
2: saying I don't, think, I don't think they do see themselves like that because they, they've cut themselves off. From one of the defining aspects of modern American society, the fact that it was found, founded in a Revolutionary War of Independence, and so the idea that there, you know, that there's still some kind of, um, you know, uh, noble kind of um, some noble aspiration of the American dream embedded in 1619, I just don't accept it because you can't have you can't have any kind of remnant of um, the great hope of American society if you cut yourself off from the revolution.
0: Okay. Well, I'll have to leave that one there, but um, I can direct listeners to episode 45 from way back in August 16th, 2018. um, So long ago. (laughs) Um, Well, almost two years ago to the date where we discussed uh, Domenico Sordo's liberalism, a counter history, which uh, deals precisely with these issues and the dialectic of, uh, of American radicalism with regard to Britain, but as well as bringing in conservatism, the defense of, uh, of slavery and uh, racial domination, and so on. Anyway, worth uh, checking that one out. Uh, episode number forty-five. To move on,
1: just check out that check out that forty-five.
0: Yeah, <laughs> what is that? I should have. It's cried. like a record. Ca- it's like right. a record, right? No, I know, but. I should have cut that off. Yeah, no, you were right, Phil. And
2: <laughs> yeah, let's move on. I'm just I'm not I'm... going to say anything now and let George, you know, like uh, give George enough rope. And soon enough, these listeners will be complaining about us not cutting George off.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Where's Wes is going to change his, his tune? <laughs>
2: um,
0: right. So, number 132, partial to Slavs. Um, someone complained that uh, why did we not have an actual Serbian or Yugoslav guest? Why did we have an American on? Um, We, I think, I don't think there's much more to say to that, other than you know we uh, liked. We had, I mean, we had a connection. Exactly.
2: Yeah, we had a connection with Lily Lynch, and Lily, we invited Lily Lynch not on the fact that um, uh, we have any particular predilection for talking to um, you know to Westerners over others, but because on the strength of her contribute, the fact that she was uh, editor and founder of a magazine that had um, some repute on the region, Balkanist. And of her writings in a magazine, some of which were, you know, we liked a lot and were very good. And that was on the grounds on which we were confident that she un- had a good understanding of the region that we wanted to explore with her and to share with our listeners. So, I mean, I yeah. think you know that's straightforward
0: enough. A- as a general point as well, I think people, foreigners based in another country, often have uh, a, a, maybe a sharper view of things uh, that's than true. People- I think,
2: except for Brazil.
0: Well, you think foreigners here don't have a good view of? of I'm trying to think of a uh, foreigner. No, I'm, there's plenty of and and, and in fact, where we will probably re- be recording with one soon. Um, but I think anyway, it just gives you a different perspective. And and actually, you know, there's there's often a uh, question. You know, in us searching for guests, we ask ourselves. You know, debating whether one person or another. Sometimes you might have a, a brilliant person, but who's not based in that country. They're from that country, but are an emigre. Have been working and teaching or whatever abroad for years, and. I, my preference generally would be for people who are still based in the country who have a feel for what's going on on, on a day-to-day basis. And uh, if they're if they happen to be a foreigner, you know, so be it. Um, in fact, sometimes that gives an interesting critical perspective because you have a certain critical distance, uh, which people who um, you know are still living are living in their own country perhaps don't have. So um, I always think it's, interesting. Uh, it's
1: our, interesting. Our guests have our guests have no nation. They. Indeed. They have no country. Sorry. Indeed, they they live there uh, only citizens of uh,
0: the Republic of Bunga, uh, right? So one more quite one more point on the um, partial to Slavs number one thirty two was um, sensible captain on Patreon pointing out that uh, a friend of hers had remarked the Serbian diaspora is very overrepresented among sane and thoughtful Marxist intellectuals, um, which maybe runs against my previous point. <laughs> yes, surprisingly, Phil agrees. Um, she further comments that. Uh, Lily Inch's estimation of Vucic, the role and reception of the EU, the fake liberal leftism of the young and urban middle class, uh, resonated very much with my impression from the past times I've spent in Belgrade. Uh, what was maybe missed out in this episode and with uh, Lily's interpretation uh, was the re emerging tribalist nationalism that has only become a phenomenon in the last 10 or 15 years or so after the factual end of Yugoslavia. Serbia has become a neo nationalist and neoliberal country. Uh, with only some lackluster intellectuals trying to appease Guardian-style mm-hmm. political rhetoric. Um, so, I mean, the, the contention there is that we maybe have missed out exactly the, the the real force of tribalist nationalism in the former Yugoslavia. And with that in mind, how do we incorporate Assange's estimation of Serbia showing that, or rather that Serbia shows the rest of the world an image of its own future, i.e. if Serbia is uh, the home of tribalist nationalism, uh, is that the way we're all heading?
2: I suppose I would, um, I'm not sure, I don't know. It's difficult with, um, you know, I don't think Serbia, so, uh, okay, let me get this right. So with Assange, I think, um, you know, the kind of nationalism that you see in the region is not so dissimilar to the kinds of nationalism that you see elsewhere. You have a kind of uh, alt-right inflection, uh, strengthened, um, an emboldened uh, conservative, hard kind of even reactionary conservative movement to the fringes. But again, I mean, the trouble is, I think, that populist nationalism is the way in which certain kinds of political aspirations are expressed that find themselves blocked out by a particular kind of liberal status quo. So um, I'm not sure, I mean, to call it tribalist, I don't, you know, I don't think it's, um, if it captures the phenomenon uh, any with any greater specificity, Um, than you would by by understanding it as populist nationalism and where i think is tremendously and this is i mean it's repeating a point i made in the episode itself but what's tremendously important about the vucic government um and in it might indeed show us an image of the future is how much it's combined um technocracy and populist nationalism and that's something which is um you know remarkable how much that's done in an autocratic kind of political package um, and whether that could be more widespread, whether there are other um, political leaders who will find ways of fusing fusing those themes. And I think you can see some of that, you know, in places like uh, with Italy's League, for instance. Um, you know, then I think, um, you know, Assange would be right about Serbian politics.
1: Yeah, I think that's, that's, that's the question, isn't it? You know, I think the idea of techno-populism is starting to become more widespread in in political analysis and it's whether it becomes a kind of there's a national nationalist authoritarian slant on that which it which it lends itself to quite um quite easily um and if that's replicated more widely than just in in serbia i'm yeah i i think the 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 jury's still out really.
0: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, the, um, the like the Brazilian e- economist, uh, teaches in England, Alfredo de Sade, argues that we're entering a third age of neoliberalism, of authoritarian neoliberalism, um, which would run counter to something that we've argued often that we're seeing the end of neoliberalism. So, I mean, you know, and again, I think there's a, it's, there's a question mark over that. Um, the idea would anyway be that the way that certain popular aspirations and the way that Phil characterized, the way that certain popular aspirations are today expressed in nationalist, populist language, I think is definitely true, precisely because any kind of liberal or left-wing Way of doing so is blocked off, or uh, is unable to be challenged or channeled through to poli- through to the political sphere by centre-left parties because they themselves are so wedded to neoliberalism. Um, yeah, they're
2: hostile of, to mass politics
0: and mass like, democracy. Exactly. So, uh, so as a consequence, uh, neoliberal elites, certain on you know entrepreneurial. Uh, versions of that I mean entrepreneurs in the sense of being political entrepreneurs will take up that call recuperate those demands and sell them back as as a form of nationalist authoritarianism and and I think you can see that in you know in Brazil as well um but yeah I think you know arguably Trump as well you know you basically have neoliberal continuity maybe with some um small modifications but with a lot of uh changes at the discursive level of uh, you know saying no we we care about you the people you're the real authentic people that we care about without not the outsiders not etc not the liberal elites and so on but nothing really changes and i think in that regard yeah that does seem to be sadly uh, the the future for the time being <laughs> the future for the time being um uh just moving on quickly we have uh, number 133 and 134 was the call uh with uh, kritika, which was on um, the Saudis, uh, the promotion of Islamism and so on, the um, first up, Sam on patreon says the revolution, the revolution no the revelation of Phil's Omani upbringing uh, prompted me to, to wonder if you could do an episode on your personal biographies um, I and please enable my parasocial ideations. Uh, can I just firmly say no, absolutely no and never
1: no I mean wait until the the authorized biographies come out um no i mean there is there is something i mean there is something interesting about having about when we have guests asking them about um their backgrounds and their and their kind of personal stories and how they got to where they are but you know that's where their guests they're much more
2: stories they're much
1: more interesting than than we are um
2: well speak for yourselves i mean more interesting than you guys are definitely
1: yeah um, i don't think um i don't think those are taking that bait um i don't think those profile episodes on on us individually are coming anytime soon
0: no we're just we're just uh podcasting brains and vats so uh just think of us as that and uh we'll go from there um several this comments is part,
1: this is obviously partly because of our cia backgrounds and of we emerge we've, fully <laughs> as fully formed podcasters <laughs> just in 2017 yeah
0: uh so um So so several comments uh, as to great power usage of jihadism or Islamism in earlier eras, pointing out that uh, you know the Brits and the French used it in the nineteenth century. Um, So that was David Colonino, uh, Someone called Mate, uh, are they my Mate? Who's Mate? Are they Mate? Maybe it's Mate. uh, Maybe it's Mate. You're right. Uh, Says Germany uh, during World War One also uh, tried to encourage Islamism to challenge uh, British and French holdings in the Middle East, Um, and also that part of the Western left has also had great sympathy for the resistance fighters, um, you know, in the 1980s, uh, looking to the Mujahideen, everyone on the left, apart from the Moscow loyal faction, um, which I think is, which I think is true and, and fairly damning um, of those that did it. But you, I mean, you do see, um, you know, even today, kind of, especially, I guess, people coming more from the Trotskyist tradition, um, looking to radical Islamism as a sort of uh, radical challenge to, to imperialism. Um,
2: yeah. And that was, I mean, you know, that was infamously the case with Tariq Ali, who um talked about um even called um the insurgency in Iraq the Maquis after the um French resistance, you know, utterly kind of an utterly kind of ridiculous uh extension to what was happening in kind of Iraq with all the uh, sectarian bloodshed and jihadi um influence over the insurgency to kind of draw that comparison, but it's true. Um the kind of the there is, there was, and is, I think, still um, Western, a sympathetic Western left for jihadism, unfortunately.
0: Um, should we move? Should we move on to the next one? Um, yeah. So the uh, we had some comments on banana monarchy. Uh, our interview with David Edgerton about British decline. Um, decline when, is. It? Yes, indeed. I said British decline. Well, declinism. Yeah, indeed. Well, that's very much to the point because, uh, well, firstly, Mark, Mark Meyerson asks, um, you know, what happened with the import, re importation of imperial bureaucrats as the empire crumbled? Did they become managers of, for example, national benefits that had uh, hitherto been supplied locally? I'm not sure mm-hmm. I can entirely parse that, but um, mm. it's, a good, no, it's a good question.
2: It's interesting. Yeah. I can't so I can't remember um Edgerton specifically talking about it in um about tracing the biography of um specific kind of um imperialist administrators um brought you know brought back in. But I mean as far you know to the best of my knowledge, a lot of them stayed out, right? As well. They became um, you know, kind of uh, uh military advisors of various kinds or were kind of uh, remained in post in various kind of diplomatic positions. So I mean that kind of imperial infrastructure remained as part of the project of decolonization in many cases, so I'm not sure mm. that many were actually re imported as the empire was rolled up
1: yeah it's in, i mean it's kind of going around places that used to be part of of the empire, and Hong Kong sticks in in my mind they have that some areas of it where there's still a big expat community have a a very strange um feeling about them which suggests that maybe there wasn't that that complete I guess withdrawal of the the old the old bureaucrats and another thing which which this this question made me think of is um, John Le Carré's work, which might sound like a bit of a sideways or diagonal step, because that is a good fictional account of I guess some of the deflation, kind of as the as the empire is is receding and or or has been um, uh, cancelled. That's I don't know why. I'm using that word because <laughs> that's obviously not the way it happened. Um, so it's been a long day, clearly. But, but what was my point? My point was here you see, uh, I guess, some of the people who who might have some of the same outlooks as the old imperial, imperial bureaucrats being f- forced to act and, and operate in a very in a very different way. And it's not a kind of celebratory um, fiction, straightforwardly celebratory fictional portrayal. Instead, there's a um, a kind of wistfulness, and I, I think it, it it kind of made me think of what the you know what would the, the mindset be of the those imperial administrators who suddenly have the the rug pulled out um, from underneath them? Yeah, absolutely. Uh,
0: one uh, critical point made by Wilhelm on Patreon that they found this episode especially uninformative. Uh, There was no sense of any empirical measures discussed that would prove or disprove the decline narrative. To talk about decline or lack of it, criteria must be made explicit. And for many criteria that left-wing people would espouse, there has been significant decline in Great Britain over the past few decades. For example, wealth inequality. Um, So did we fail to define what uh, decline would mean in discussing British
1: decline and declinism? We declined no. We declined to give a definition of declinism.
2: No, we, that's not true. I that's mean, not because true. We made very clear, Edgerton made very clear that um, declinism was the misattribution of the cause of Britain's shift in relative status with the rest of the world. Um, so the fact being that it's um, internal, you know, as other essentially as other countries industrialized, Britain has this intense experience of decline relative to the rest of the world, um, and it's misattributed to internal causes. So the point is there is the de- declineism never actually meshed with the reality of Britain's changing status. So that's the answer to this question of whether or not there are empirical measures, because. You know, I mean, one thing that was very clear was the fact that Britain's kind of industrial continued kind of expanding economically and industrially over the course of um, uh, the 20th century up until, you know, the 1970s or so. Um, But even though as a relative, kind of its relative position in the world uh, was less because obviously there were other uh, much larger and more important industrial powers in that period. So I think there's, you know, there's just a a confusion there. And in terms of the to talk about, um, and that's a different kind of decline, you know, that kind of sense of national declinism is separate from uh, changing, you know, demographic and economic figures on questions of wealth inequality. And I'm not sure to say, you know, to say that wealth inequality has increased, to say that to decline in Britain, I'm not sure that uh, makes I think, much sense I think either, that, because it's it would be to it, say, Yeah, I mean know, it, it it's, would be... Sorry.
0: It's precisely it be... that these these debates are held out, are carried out at the from the perspective and about the perspective of the ruling class about Britain competing in the world, so not about social measures yeah. at home.
2: Yeah, quite so. And um, you know, I mean, to say there's more wealth inequality now would be a decline on one measure, I suppose. But the implication that, you know, that Britain was some kind, I mean, the implication of Britain was a a wonderful kind of social democratic paradise uh, 30 years ago, um, and that this is, you know, that we would wish to kind of turn the clock back to that, I think would be entirely mistaken. So I don't, wouldn't even, you know, while accepting that wealth inequality has got worse over time, I wouldn't characterize that as decline, because that would suggest that there was some high point from which we've descended, and I don't accept that there was a, you know, this kind of high point that we'd wish to go back to.
0: Yeah, I mean and you know the, the in the late 70s Britain it, through Britain's late 70s crisis was seen as a sick man of Europe as well then so um and in yeah, that regard, I you mean, know inequality has greatly increased since then I, anyway I the think point is, th- the point is
2: anyway the not- there's a reason the neoliberals there's a reason won right because um the previous kind of uh, the previous kind of social democratic um structure crumbled away because it had lost legitimacy and was unable to resolve its own contradictions
0: and, and in any way, the point is more just that the question of decline is precisely in sort of great power terms, in terms of industrial output, in terms of weapons, in terms of uh, diplomatic reach, etc. All these questions, um, and not one of uh, you know social well-being or or whatever enfranchisement of the masses. I mean, I, I don't think that's the terrain on which the debate about decline is held. Held anyway.
1: Yeah, it's always it's always relative. It's always outward looking. Um, even though the, the kind, there might be a bit of confusion about what, as there often are in kind of imaginings of what, a, what makes a great power or, you know, the, the mythical past or relative standing of, of being at the top table or however people will frame it. There's a lot of, a lot of kind of mystification there, but I think the, it's always in relative terms, isn't it, decline relative to the competitors to you know, the, the rest of the world. Um, and I think Edgerton's was 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 the book is fairly compelling on this on this point. Um And and a very useful corrective as well
0: Okay, let's move on to uh, what I think will be the final section uh, because there's quite a couple of comments on our episode on policing, um, which was number 138. Uh, lots on this, both affirmative and critical. And uh, we'll start with a positive just because... Um, Give ourselves a warm, fuzzy feeling. No, because we have, uh, we'll no doubt have more to say on the critical one. So let's, several people thought it was a very good discussion. CM, uh, Jared Hans and Graham Maffinson. Jared Hans said it was incredibly helpful to parse these issues from a strictly Marxist perspective uh, while also recognizing and incorporating the blatantly racial aspects that pervade policing in the US. Uh, Graham Maffinson said, uh, you know, a corrective as well as liking the episode said that the concept of the U.S. carceral state is not primarily about the war on drugs, uh, which most people agree is awful and needs to be done away with. Um, but it's actually a reaction to an incredibly violent time in, uh, time in the U.S., which was the late 1960s. Um, he goes further and says, we have to grapple with the idea that mass imprisonment may actually have been a major factor, a major contributor to the historically low crime rates in the U.S. today. America is a violent country from its very start, and most left solutions to mass incarceration act as though crime is made up of just uh, crime and those locked up is mainly just those people uh, locked up on phony nonviolent charges, which is simply not true, i.e. that there is still a lot of crime, but that crime perhaps has been reduced precisely because of mass imprisonment. Again, not that uh, Graham Affinson is in favor of that, but as as an analysis, um, he argues that that has been uh, a major factor.
2: Yeah, it's a challenging, I mean, it's a challenging contention, right? Um, And I suppose it's something, you know, um, I would need to, I guess I'd need to consider it more kind of systematically to think about how far you could attribute the decline in violence to, to, um, to mass incarceration. I mean, it doesn't seem, you know, without, I suppose, getting into the detail of it, it seems to me to be problematic in as much as Um, you didn't have you know you had the kind of um, increase in violence in the 60s but that it wasn't as if mass you didn't have mass incarceration before that right so you wouldn't be able to why would mass incarceration explain a decline in violent crime in the post-60s period but you wouldn't have it to explain the relative absence of violent crime prior prior to the 60s Um, but I take you know and I take the point that the um that there is often this kind of pat um, response from um, many on the left that violent crime isn't a problem um, and that it's all just, um, you know, kind of, that uh, it's all simply um, a, you know, kind of social construction of people who are misunderstood and problems that would kind of magically disappear if only, um, you know, I don't know, the minimum wage was high or something like that. And that, you know, that is something, in fact, it links to our episode that we had with um, Steve Hall, um, uh, a while back, who's a criminologist and who addresses, in his um, kind of school of criminology, is precisely addressed to criticising this notion on the left that um, that uh, fear of violent crime is kind of manufactured by the state and it has no genuine or legitimate basis and anyone who believes in the dangers of violent crime is basically an idiot. Um, so, you know, I mean, I... I think that's genuine, Um, but nonetheless, I mean, it seems to me, you know, um, if you consider the, not only the kind of the famous cases, but also the sheer kind of punitive character of the American penal system, um, the brutality with which it imprisons for relatively minor infractions, not to mention relatively minor drugs charges as well. um, You know, then it seems to me that it is kind of a, it is, um, mass incarceration is something which is, um, yeah. out of all proportion to the actual character of crime and that it uh, is about yeah. social control. Um, not just about, um, you know, redress of violent criminality because, um, the scale of kind of, of the American carceral state is so much greater than the actual kind of prevalence of, um, of, uh, violent crime in the states and i wouldn't go as i wouldn't go as far as to say oh you know kind of america's always been a violent country hand-waving therefore mass incarceration is kind of a is a natural mm. outcome of american history that seems to me to be kind of um uh, defeatist and i'm not saying that's what graham thinks yeah on, but i think i think
0: But I think the decline in violence, I think if you look at a comparative perspective, and uh, you're right to shout out uh, Steve Hall, that's episode 65 from March 2019, if you want to check that out. Um, And we should have him back on maybe to discuss some of these issues. I think the point is, on a comparative perspective, one of the most remarkable things of the past maybe 30 years, has been the decline in violence across societies in in the West. I mean, across many of them. Yeah, in in the
2: developed world, yeah, without mass incarceration.
0: Exactly. Or, you know, Britain has very high incarceration rates as well, which have increased, which may be a factor, an explanatory factor there. But I don't think it's so much in other countries. So uh, I think there's something else going on there. Maybe we should have an episode about uh, the decline of violence. I know it's something that we've discussed amongst ourselves a number of times.
1: Yeah. I mean... You don't want to kind of go all is it Stephen Pinker about it angels of our better nature yeah. or Whatever, but I mean because these are historical and political processes and I think that's it is important to separate in the American context the situation from uh, the rise of mass incarceration the, uh, the period that, that Graham refers to in in the 60s and contemporary situation because obviously there's there's not necessarily a consistent um, and uniform and u- single explanation for all of these things, but it seems quite apparent that the 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 American carceral state today is heavily based on that precisely that punitive and particularly drugs focused nature focused nature of imprisoning people for relatively minor um, drugs offenses, particularly, and that has a really determining character on American political life. Um, I think that's, you know, that's Mm -hmm. quite an obvious point, but important one to make.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's not just the drug, but it's not just drugs. I mean, I think the, the point is also is that it's not just punitive. In fact, I mean, I think one of the arguments that we discussed precisely in that episode is that it's more about social control, about dealing with a surplus population for which capital has no use. So therefore just put people in jail. Um, Though someone didn't like our analysis, uh, Beardzo Tarp said, this episode is underwhelming. Uh, It didn't include the thoughtful analysis I'm used to. I understand that this is a foreign topic to the hosts, but it did feel like a rehashing of Red Scare or Amy Therese takes, which isn't to say their takes are bad, which they are. It's to say that these takes are flimsy. (laughs) Um, We didn't mention qualified immunity, nor how police departments receive money for more training, nor the various training methods for police communities, for... Excuse me. The various training methods for policing communities. Uh, the episode just sounded like an echo chamber of the podcast. Left. Um, if they ever want to re- reapproach this debate, if that is us, if we ever want to reapproach this debate, I hope they get a guest who knows what they're talking about. That is outside the Chapo Trap House extended universe. Never heard a more insulting set of uh, comments in my life. Beards so tarp, looking at you, mate. <laughs>
1: Uh, <laughs> no, I have to say
2: I mean I dis yeah, I disagree with this because I don't think we said anything that was um I don't think we said anything that was particularly um required uh you know expertise with respect to um with respect to kind of um particular policing methods in different um, municipalities or what have you. We were making broad points about the the fact say that the movement um, you know I think clearly it can be the kind of the um, the anti police kind of riots and protests might be highly organized and key into all sorts of local social struggles on a local level, but that doesn 't mean that they have political independence in the sense that they represent political organizations that are separate from the democratic party or that many of them might not be easily manipulated by um, democratic municipal administrations and play into Um, the narrative that the Democratic Party is weaving in order to um, take the White House back, you know, take the White House back in the presidential election. So, I mean, I think the, you know, the comments that we made um, uh, were general comments about the political characteristics of the protests. It wasn't specific, you know, we weren't kind of um, suggesting um, that uh, every, you know, Every single particular characterizing, every single, you know, what happens in every particular municipality or community across the U.S. And I don't think that was incumbent on us to address and nor did we make claims that went in that direction. Um, Or even, you know, or to suggest or to suggest that there is no uh, possibility for policing reform. Um, There is plenty. Um, I'm sure, and plenty policing reform that would be generally beneficial to you know U.S. citizens. Uh, The main point was, I think, the fact that we shouldn't misplace, we shouldn't misplace hope in the idea of um, of that abolish. Our main point was about abolishing the police being an empty slogan that will be, which is completely meaningless in the contemporary context, and will inevitably be filled by the interests. Of other groups, um, who's in, who will not have, um, you know, who will not have the interests of uh, um, the American people who live in American inner cities, or American workers, or the American poor. Um, they won't have those interests, and they won't be defending them when they mm. restructure police departments. That was the point we were making. I
1: don't, I don't think it's particularly contrarian um, or particularly kind of hot take to say that is it that essentially the you know the police police are there to protect property and that puts a that puts a uh, a barrier or a, or a kind of in the last case or in the last analysis you know what what is the function of this um of this kind of um part of the state i think that's that's a pretty straightforward kind of claim to make and i guess it maybe you can put that into into various contexts and see how that fits with possibilities for police reform in in different locations in the us but i think it's important not to lose sight of that that kind of basic point um which i think was one of the things that we all sort of agreed on as far as i can recall in the in terms of the discussion on in that episode
0: yeah no i I don't uh, disagree i mean you know i think there's plenty that you could uh disagree with us politically on, um, or indeed say that, you know, well, didn't consider such and such proposals for reform, which would actually make a difference, which in, in, indeed, you know, maybe we did miss those out. Uh, shout us out. If you want to, Hey, you know, if you want us to discuss that, or if in, rather, if, uh, you know, want to send us some readings on that, uh, feel free to, uh, to do so. Um, but in general, the point w- was um, to deal with the, the current state of the debate on, on these matters. Um, and, the current and the current general thrust of things was either defund or abolish, which uh, which we dealt which we dealt with. I mean, you know, if the fact that there might be more marginal proposals out there which aren't being uh, sufficiently discussed, that may be the case. But uh, you know, especially looking at it from from where we're sitting, uh, there's obviously a, a kind of mainstream of criticism of of calls for reform, uh, which is the ones that we dealt
1: with. Yeah, no, I mean it's, it's it's good that the comment, um, in some way suggests that we if there was a possibility to reapproach the um, reapproach the debate. I think it will be interesting to see where it lies in a, a you know a year hence, and and in terms of the, I guess, the legacy, either the continuation or the legacy of BLM and the relationship to to policing, because I think, you know, there there was a sense in which the, uh, you know, abolish or defund are quite. The way that they were articulated it was quite it necessarily reactionary to 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 events and so there wasn't perhaps some of the in many cases some of the the kind of um i guess some of the more articulated or thought out proposals it was like here's here's a slogan and that that's really seemed to capture the imagination of many on the left and that's i think more what we were analyzing so it'd be interesting to see if there are if the debate evolves I, I probably doesn't seem feel to me like it it will do, but it you know might be proved wrong and there'll be some interesting discussions on on this in the future
0: yeah indeed, uh, and it'll be interesting to see uh, how that evolves in light of whoever the next president uh, might be um okay, so I think we, Or the same president or the same president, yeah, it could be he could be reelected um I think we'll leave this here. Uh, for now, um, we'll be back with another one of these in a month. Also maybe with some um, extra bonus content that we'll record. Uh, so yeah, that's it for now. Uh, thank you for all your questions and comments. I'm sorry if we didn't uh, mention yours. And again, in future, if you do or do not want your name, uh, read out, then, uh, do let us know as when you do that. Okay. That's it for now. Catch you later. Bye-bye.